Hello there. Going through a divorce? Considering one? Sorry to hear that. But here you are. Welcome to Splitsville. You'll find Splitsville to be a pretty unique place. A new world, really, with its own rules, its own expectations, and in many ways, its own language. But don't worry. You have a knowledgeable guide along the way. A family law attorney with three decades of experience under her belt. And now, here she is. Your host and guide, Lee Sellers. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of Welcome to Splitsville. I'm your host and guide, Lee Sellers, founder of Touchstone Family Law. And in this episode, I'll be answering another question that many newcomers to Splitsville have. How do you pick a therapist? So let's dive in. So we're here with Sean Knuth again, who is a licensed psychologist in North Carolina, uh, well, his practices in North Carolina. He's been a guest before. And today we wanted to talk a little bit about things that you should consider when you're trying to choose a therapist for yourself or for your children. What are some of the things that you uh, should look into and, and maybe how do you know whether or not to leave one if you're not getting what you need? So, Sean, thanks for being here again. I'm happy to be here. So it's sort of a, a big deal to, to find a therapist. There's a lot of you, like lawyers. There are. <laughs> and I'm assuming, like lawyers, that you all have your own idiosyncrasies and, and talents and and pluses and minuses and and also just your interest, you know, like there's this general psychologist, but I'm sure people develop a specialty or they get really good at working with people with one or, you know, with a certain type of, of issue. So if you're just trying to pick a therapist, where do you go? What do you do? Well, that is a great question. And there are a few different options. There's always web searches for sure. Mecklenburg Psychological Association is another resource. Mecklenburg is fortunate enough to be large enough to support their own psychological association. Uh, and they are a resource for people to reach out to. And then there's word of mouth also. Talking to friends and family or pediatricians or general practitioners or psychiatrists. I mean, part of part of existing in the field of mental health and therapy is establishing these relationships and people will know not just if you're good, because it's more than just being good, but what your interests are as a therapist and refer people to you appropriately. That's good. Well, referrals are always the best. Now, some people have health insurance coverage that will cover therapy mm -hmm. in, in some regard, and, and some people, of course, don't. But I know that when you get that list from a insurance provider that goes, these are the people that are on that the list. It, it can be difficult when you're just looking at this list and these people take my insurance. They're not really giving you any any information. So if you've got one of these lists, do you just take it to your doctor or, you know, take it to somebody and say, hey, do you know anybody on this list? Or Well, it's uh, it's just like doing research for any other, any other profession. Uh, you know, if you want a plumber, you do your research for a plumber. If you want a therapist, you do your research for a therapist. Uh, with a therapist, though, what you're doing is you're establishing a long-term relationship. And it's not a, a personal relationship. It is a professional relationship. And good therapists know this. And so what's important to do is to meet with these individuals, 
good therapists will be happy to meet with you for five or 10 minutes at no charge just to kind of go over what their interests are to learn a little bit about you and your needs uh, to make sure there's a good fit. Because if you're not comfortable with someone, if you're not going to be able to establish that relationship, then you're not going to get better. You're not going to get any help. In fact, you could argue that it would end up making you worse. And therapists know that too. And a good therapist will say, look, I don't think I'm the right person for you, but here are some people that I think might be good referrals. Now, what I, of course, know from from doing the work I have, and, and that puts me in contact with probably more therapists than I would if I was an electrical engineer, but I know that there are a lot of therapists that don't work with insurance companies for a variety of reasons, just their office practice, or it's not they quote unquote don't take insurance but they do work outside the field. And so there are people are going to find therapists that aren't on some insurance list. And it's because they choose not to deal with the paperwork or, or work with these particular groups. But it doesn't really affect how good of a, a therapist they are. Yeah, that's correct. Generally, um, what I think you will find is that the longer a therapist has been in practice, the less likely they are to take certain types of insurance because they've been able to pare their their client load down and and stay busy with uh, with people that don't need to use insurance. Mm-hmm. And I'm not an expert on on insurance and billing, but what I know is that it's sometimes it's a set rate or it's a set fee to see a therapist, whether it's insurance or not insurance. But that's something that it's a negotiation. Now I'm not saying talk people down mm-hmm. on their price, but if you know there's out of network as an option um, or in network and there are going to be people that you can establish a good relationship with that may or may not take insurance and and ultimately i think would you rather go to 20 sessions at a hundred dollars out of pocket and not have any effect or would you rather go to 10 sessions at 200 dollars a session out of pocket and really benefit from it so again, it's like anything else. You you really need to choose wisely, and it's not always. This is definitely an area where being price conscious isn't necessarily going to get you the results that you're looking at. Yeah, and obviously the cost matters, sure, because yeah. it's expensive. It's definitely expensive, and unfortunately, or fortunately, the way therapy works is it's not like you get a course of antibiotics and you take these 15 pills and then you'll be better. Sometimes therapy is short and you don't need that many sessions. Sometimes it needs to be a long, ongoing relationship in order to to experience notable progress. Uh, Sometimes it's somewhere in between. All right. And explain sort of what credentials you would be looking for if you were vetting online before you actually could meet with somebody. Because there's various experience levels and educational levels of people that provide some sort of counseling services. Yeah, there are a lot of different licenses. So each state licenses into specific professions. I'm licensed by the North Carolina Psychology Board. There are licensed counselors. There are licensed social workers that can do therapy. And as someone with a PhD and a license in psychology, I am comfortable saying the license and the education level is not all that important. Mm -hmm. What matters is A, the relationship that you can establish with someone. B, whether that someone knows what they're doing. And if they have experience in in your particular area uh, of concern. And when I say that, I don't necessarily mean, okay, are you experienced with anxiety or are you experienced with depression? 
what they're experiencing mm -hmm. when they're going through divorce is is unique to divorce rather than someone who's experiencing stress at work or an adolescent in high school is having a hard time on the, on the football team. And I, I would say particularly look for people who have that experience because they will be more effective. And what's important to know is that therapy is not always fun. Mm -hmm. It's close to physical therapy, mm -hmm. right? You know, th physical therapy is working when you're not enjoying it. Right, when you're a little sore. You're not going to get a massage. You're going mm -hmm. to get physical therapy. And, well, mental health therapy is the same way. You are going to have sessions that are not going to be comfortable. You are not going to be able to talk about just whatever you want to talk about all the time. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to confront some things that might not be enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And a good therapist will make sure that happens. Mm -hmm. If you're going to a therapist who just gives you advice all the time and you just kind of shoot the breeze a little bit and, you know, you just talk about what happened that week and then you're done, that can be helpful. Mm -hmm. That can absolutely be helpful, but that's not necessarily effective therapy. Mm -hmm. And a more experienced therapist sort of knows when to push. Yes. And when not to. That's right. And, and a more effective therapist will know that just because the client is coming in to talk about topics A, B, and C, the therapist will know that, well, you know, there's probably two sides to A and two sides to B and three mm -hmm. sides to C. And they'll understand that, you know, they're only being presented with the information that the, that the client is giving them. So let's talk a little bit about the, the difference between the counseling or therapists that are treating adults versus children. So not all therapists will treat all ages or work with all ages, correct? That's right. And sort of the truism in our field is if you've worked with children, if you have training with children, you can go and work with adults relatively easily. But if you've only ever worked with adults, it's really hard to go back and work with kids because that takes a special area of training. You need to know a lot about child development and education and just a whole bunch of things that don't apply to adults. And so... It's important if you're getting looking for therapists for your kids, make sure they work with kids. And a, a good, competent therapist will say, no, I don't work with kids. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be appropriate for that. And even within children, there's people that choose to get trained to work with very young children. And then there's children that choose to really focus on adolescents or tweens. Or I know that they're not, they don't stay children in this range, but people that will work more with the 17 to 22 crowd or, you right. know, that sort of college age. So you, you can even with a child therapist find somebody who kind of has a subspecialty with an age group. Absolutely. And you kind of nailed it. I mean, there's, there's the adolescent, there's late adolescent, there's early adolescent, and then you'll get therapists that can work with younger children from like 10 and under. But when children are that young, the younger a child, the less therapy is interacting with that child and more therapy is interacting with the child's caregivers. Mm -hmm. And so you're not going to send a five-year-old in for talk therapy. Right. Whereas once you get to be at 11 or 12, then that starts to be a, an effective approach. And you'll hear with younger children, people talk about art therapy or some sort of creative play therapy. Sure. Often with very young children. Where yeah. They're observing their behaviors. More so than talking with them. Yeah, they're just, they're different ways of interacting with, with the child. And if you think about what a five-year-old can do, you can't sit down with a five-year-old and have a conversation. Mm -hmm. But if you can sit down with the five-year-old and some paper and crayons and draw and talk about what you're drawing. And it's really easy 
not really easy, but it's possible to segue the conversation over to stuff that might be more meaningful. Mm-hmm. And so this kind of leads to to the other question about, so you've picked a therapist and you're in therapy, or you've chosen a therapist for your child, and you're taking the child to therapy. How do you sort of tell if if you're making progress? You know, you were talking about, you know, hey, you don't necessarily want to do 20 sessions, you know, with somebody who's ineffective versus 10 sessions with somebody who is effective. How does one measure that when you're outside the profession? Yeah, it's very difficult to do. With therapy, sometimes you get that you got to take one step backwards to take two steps forward. And so after any individual session, you might feel worse. You don't know. You think about about with kids, just because one Saturday they're, Saturday they're holy terrors and they're running around, they're not listening to you, that doesn't mean they're regressing. That mm-hmm. just means they had a bad Saturday. Mm-hmm. With therapy, it's it's the same kind of thing. You don't, it's really hard to tell with it, to any degree of, of quantitative measuring whether progress is being made, but that's part of why you establish a relationship with a therapist. Well, and as you were talking about, it's uncomfortable. So sometimes somebody having an uncomfortable therapy situation doesn't mean it's it wasn't a good it wasn't a good session. <laughs> right. Well, the, and it's important to differentiate between the session being uncomfortable mm-hmm. because you were talking about things that you wanted to avoid, and a session being uncomfortable because you just sat and stared at each other for an hour. Is there a rule of thumb about what is? I don't know this is a totally random number, but is there a certain number of sessions that, you know, that people universally say, hey, you you really need to give a therapist X amount of of meetings with you before you really decide whether it's working or before we as a therapist can tell whether or not this is a good working relationship? There's no set number, but I think that it should be obvious to um, either the client or the therapist or both within the first few sessions whether the relationship is going to work and the therapist should be the therapist is, is ethically obligated to say, look, I don't think I can treat you or provide you with the treatment that I told you I could. Let's figure out what we can do. Let's figure out who you can go see. And so what about if it's a child? So you're taking your child, so you're not actually involved in it. Mm-hmm. How do you really evaluate that situation? Because sometimes you're going to have children coming out going, I don't want to go back. I don't like it. And that's not necessarily going to right. give you the information you need as to whether or not this is working. Sure. Uh, yeah. Children will say they don't want to eat their broccoli, but that mm-hmm. doesn't mean they shouldn't be eating it. Right. So the younger a child, this is more true for younger children than older children, but therapy with children, the younger they are, the more it needs to involve the parents. Mm-hmm. And so the therapist should be talking to parents or meeting with parents as therapy goes on, giving them progress, giving them updates, talking with the therapist, providing the parent information on what they can do different or how they can maybe modify their approach to parenting the child. And so when you have therapy with a child, especially the younger they are, the more it's like a three-way collaboration. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, the parent should have a good sense of how it's going. Now, a couple of things that I, in my own experience, I recommend against. A lot of therapists will do like check-ins with a parent at the beginning of a session. That needs to be no more than like five minutes. And honestly, that needs to just be a quick, and it's up to the therapist, of course, what they like. 
But what I've seen that is of concern to me is parents will kind of dilate that check-in time period from five minutes to 10 minutes to 20 minutes to whatever, talking about their own issues or, or talking about the child. That needs to take place in a separate session, whether it's on the phone or whether it's in person, because each child needs to have their set period of time with a therapist where it is just them. Mm-hmm. The other thing that can be of concern is you see parents identify a therapist to treat themselves and the children. Mm-hmm. I don't like that. I think in that situation, while it can be helpful to have sort of a helping professional coordinating and helping to coordinate the relationship between all the people involved, I would have concerns about the treat- the quality of treatment that everyone was getting if one therapist was trying to one size fits all in. Yeah, I know that that, that's a concern a lot of therapists have raised, but I know it's especially a concern I've had sometimes with representing people when the child is seeing the same therapist as just one parent. Mm -hmm. Do you have as much of a concern if you've got one therapist that might be treating like everybody, like having separate sessions with both parents and the child? Or is it more of a concern where you just have one parent and the child? They all carry with them their sets of benefits and concerns. And one thing that I think is important for everyone involved in these processes to acknowledge is that therapy is expensive. And therapy for parents and kids and joint sessions is expensive. And then we're talking about driving to two or three appointments a week when you've got a, I mean, we need to acknowledge the fact that this Mm -hmm. is a substantial burden. As far as what permutation of all the people involved a therapist treats, You know, you need to take it on a case-by-case basis. Mm -hmm. I think that if you're going to treat a child, you need, as a therapist, to be willing to meet with and accept information from all of that child's caregivers. Mm -hmm. And I say caregivers, you know, because maybe grandparents are involved. If grandparents are coming out once a year, you don't need to spend too much time with them. Mm -hmm. But, you know, let's just take the, the prototypical example. Let's say you've got a 10-year-old child and mom and dad are getting divorced. That therapist needs to take information in from both mom and dad, no matter how much mom may hate dad or dad may hate mom or how much the child may hate dad or the child may hate mom. They still need to get information from them. They still need to be involved. That's not the same as saying that the therapist needs to disclose to all parties all information that everybody talks about. And that's one of the reasons why I believe it's important for uh, families that are going through this process to find therapists that are skilled working with with divorcing families because those therapists understand how to set up boundaries and how to really make sure that that the flow of information is appropriate which is really important and and I know that I will run into and I mean I I try to correct it but I will run into a parent who's like I don't think my child needs therapy. I don't agree with it. The other parent can take them on their time. I'm not going to have anything to do with it and I'm usually like if your child is seeing a therapist you need to be involved in it for the child's sake because you're you really are depriving the person who you're letting you know help your child whether you think they need help or not you're depriving them of you know of relevant information because if you think they don't need therapy then you've obviously got a different perspective about what's going on in the child's life whether you're right or wrong mm-hmm. you're clearly you know already looking at things very differently you've got one parent that believes very much the child would benefit from therapy got another saying they don't have any issues and so nothing else that therapist needs to know what you're both seeing that's letting you reach these independent 
judgments that are so polar. Right. Absolutely. Another aspect to that, another side to that is, you know, if the child believes in therapy, if the child believes they need to go to therapy, separate from the child believing that they're sick, right? But if a child thinks, look, I need to go to therapy. This is helpful for me. What a great gesture for the parent that doesn't believe in therapy to say, look, I'm going to take you to this anyway. Right. And I'm going to be involved because I know this is important to you. And, and I think it does make a difference. And we do, you know, we have parents that sit back and choose not to be involved. And, you know, I mean, that's their choice that, you know, they have their own, you know, things to deal with. But we're all free to make bad decisions. Yeah. You know, well, you know, it happens and we, and we, we certainly can't control sure. it. But I certainly know that therapists, um, good therapists that treat children usually are asking to get input from all of the caregivers. Yes. They can't make them do it, but. Right. At least they've at least they've asked. And I think that that's also a thing. If you're if you're taking your child to see a therapist, uh, your child to see this therapist, and they're never asking about the other parent, to me that's a red flag. I agree. I would agree. You know, when they're never saying, "I need some time with mom" or "I need some time with dad," um, for me that's usually a red flag. Mm-hmm. And I, and I think that when you're taking your child to a therapist and they're not asking that important question, when there is another caregiver, and I'm not talking about when there's only one right. for one reason, but when there's not another caregiver, you should probably question why or if you're getting the best feedback. Right. And, and you know, from just a, from an, an evaluative perspective, if I'm doing an evaluation, you talk to therapists and you find, I mean, obviously you don't get all the details of everything ever disclosed to them. But one of the things that's important for me from our field's perspective is how involved is this parent in the child's treatment and is the parent understanding of their own contributions to what might be causing the current difficulties. And part of the way we can assess that is, is this parent actively seeking to get the opposite parent involved in the child's treatment? So let's talk a little bit about information flowing. Sure. So if you're going to your own therapy and your own therapist and you're talking, you usually hope that those communications are going to be confidential. When you're taking your child to a therapist, often the parents are not expecting those communications to be confidential. They're expecting that therapist to tell them what's going on, what their child's saying. What sort of expectations should a parent that's taking a child to therapy have about those sessions and, and the confines on what that therapist is going to share with them? Well, I think the parent should have an expectation that they will be told what the therapist believes they need to know in order to help the child. And the therapist should know that they need to involve parents in the child's treatment, but the therapist also needs to protect the child's confidentiality, right? The child needs to know that not everything they talk about will automatically be parroted back to the parents. And parents should recognize the fact that maintain, even though, even though, you know, if, if they are legal guardians of the child, they have access to all the files and records that are generated as part of therapy. Parents need to to recognize that maintaining some level of confidentiality is absolutely critical to the process, that um, the child needs to have a safe space to disclose things to the therapist, to talk about things, to experiment, to say things that they don't know if are right, and to get feedback from an adult on it. And if a parent insists on knowing everything that's discussed, therapy probably won't be that effective. 
the child will be less likely to engage therapists in the future because they have had this experience where it's just, you know, there might as well be a recorder in the room. I, I would have concern about that parent's motivation. Mm-hmm. If that parent is just that vested in learning everything that their child says. Now, if the child's five, the child's six, that's fine. If a child's 11, 12, or 13, part of being a good parent is understanding that a child of that age needs to develop their own life and needs to have stuff separate from their parents. And so a parent that just wants to review all the session notes from their 12-year-old's therapy session, I would have concerns about that parent's boundaries. And talking about within the context of a divorce case, you know, I certainly always explain it, it's sort of a, a tough thing to say is that a court can determine that a therapist notes or a therapist testimony is going to be relevant to their determination. So it's not always going to stay confidential in the context of a divorce case if a judge rules it's relevant. Mm -hmm. But most therapists do try to protect the confidentiality of both their notes and, and their conversations and don't just willingly Don't just hand them over. Yeah, they don't give it over. Well, I think a therapist, a good therapist, recognizes that all of those decisions are value judgments. And when I talk to uh, the therapist about this, because I, I do have a lot of experience with sort of the permeability of confidentiality in court cases, what I try to talk through with therapists is the idea that ultimately your job is to help this child. And there are some cases where, ultimately, the best way that you can help this child is to go against what might be your instincts to protect the therapy records and to make it public. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's the only way you can help a child. It can be um, Actually, a frustrating me, intersection there. <laughs> yeah, let me, let me rephrase that. Sometimes what happens is the parent's insistence on exercising their right to the information places the parent in a position where the only way they can continue to help the child is to disclose information. Mm-hmm. And that's what I would say if you asked me that question and I was testifying that sure. <laughs> that slow, careful uh, approach to it. Well, and it is difficult. And that's what goes back to your original point very early in this conversation was if you are in a divorce situation, you need to be asking the question, are you comfortable or are you experienced having therapy with a child whose parents are going through a divorce? Or are you experienced with therapy with an individual who's going through a divorce? Because their understanding of what to say when and what to have with their notes and how to handle the information and how to respond to court involvement is completely connected to how experienced they've been. Or maybe Maybe it's not fair in some groups or the the group, at least, or the Mm -hmm. practice group has some experience where they can give a a psychologist or a therapist some guidance with it. Yeah, absolutely. And every licensed mental health professional is is charged by their ethics document to seek out consultation with colleagues if they don't know what's going on. And I am certainly happy to speak with anybody. You know, I'm not an expert in consulting with social workers or, or people outside of my license, but reach out to people who have experience working with the courts to get some guidance. What you don't want to rely on is you don't want to rely on on water cooler hearsay about, oh, this is how I respond to subpoenas or this is how I deal with parents that are, you know, at each other's throats. 
there, you know, the, how you deal with it from a, from like a practice standpoint is one thing, but how you deal with it from a release of records, confidentiality, legal standpoint is another. Now, just because we were talking about how you pick, is there like an oversight committee or licensing board? Like, you know, with lawyers, we have a lot of oversight. There's ethics committees and grievance committees and, and, you know, there's, there's a group that's watching us <laughs> that um, people complain to. It, do counselors and therapists have a similar sort of oversight? Well, uh, so I'm a licensed psychologist and the North Carolina Psychology Board acts as a clearinghouse for all of those things. So the, the North Carolina Psychology Board maintains a website where you can go and check license status for anybody that purports to be licensed as a psychologist or a licensed psychological associate. The difference between those two, an LPA is a master's level mm -hmm. psychologist, whereas an LP is a doctoral level psychologist. But the website will let you check to see if they have active license uh, status. And the website will also, you know, you can search there to see if people have board complaints or open board complaints. Mm -hmm. But I tell everybody when I start to work with them, now, of course, I work in a different setting than most psychologists. But when I sit down, almost the very first thing I tell people is, look, if you have a problem with how things are going, talk to me, talk to your attorney. But really, when it comes down to it, the psychology board is your place to go for any concerns or complaints. And I give them the address, the web address, and I say, here's where you go. And licensing boards, and it's probably the same way with the other licensed mental health professionals in the state, the North Carolina Psychology Board is very responsive. And if you have questions about how somebody is running their practice or is this okay or is that okay, send them an email. Mm -hmm. I mean, they are there. The reason I pay so much mm -hmm. for my licensing fee every year is to maintain that resource for the people that I work with. And so really licensing would be one thing. I know you've talked about the fact that experience and and. and you don't have a, um, I guess I'm snobbery about your own licensure, but really the licensing would provide somebody who was really very vigilant about making sure that they were taking their child or they were going to somebody who was, had some oversight. If you pick somebody who's licensed, it's guaranteed that there is some sort of oversight and you can at least check into Absolutely. what it is. And if you choose to go to a non-licensed therapist, counselor, advisor, you're not going to have that. It doesn't mean that you have to avoid those people, but you know, if that's an important thing to you, then yeah, you I should. would say that if you're if you're dealing with confidential information, if you're dealing with therapy, absolutely go to someone who has a license. There there are places in this world for life coaches, for pastoral counseling, absolutely. But when you're talking about serious mental health treatment, um, make sure that they're licensed because that gives you as the, the, the client some protections and some guarantees well, and recourse. Sure. And, and as a, a divorce attorney, I will often pull people out of those other types of, of situations when they're starting with this. Cause I'm like, I want you to be seeing somebody licensed because Good. I need to make sure that there's some oversight and that they understand the roles and they have the resources that they need because not to, diminish the help that those other organizations might have provided. And again, we've talked about cost. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the biggest barriers is so if it's a difference between not getting any help at all, and getting licensed help, you know, if the pastoral counseling or, or some of the, um, the other agencies which are providing it for free, you know, it's kind of tough sometimes to say Absolutely. to somebody, well, we don't want you doing anything but licensed. But I do often encourage them if you're in this arena, we may need to change 
who you're seeing or who your children are seeing and, and move you into this arena because there is a huge difference with the support that, you know, these other counselors have or their understanding of court proceedings. and Certainly. And I've seen some pretty good efficacy from people who see both pastoral counseling mm-hmm. and professional counseling. Yes. Those two in conjunction can be fantastic. Exactly. So they just pull in the other person. Right. And they can communicate. Well, thank you so much. I think this is some good information for people to have. I know I personally have a recommendation that when people are going through the crisis of a a relationship ending, whether it's a marriage or whether it's a co-parent, you know, with the Mm -hmm. other parent or any of these big life changes, you know, I'm a huge advocate of reaching out and having therapy. So it's certainly a, a, I want people to know I have this vent that I usually tell all of my clients that they would probably benefit from some sort of counseling or therapy, whether they've been before. So in full, full openness here, (laughs) I really do find it to be beneficial for most all of my clients and that that's an important thing for them to do to take care of themselves during this process. In addition to hiring a Competent counsel. Um, yes, I feel like a competent therapist is is equal, equal in need for this. So I appreciate you coming on and, and letting people who might be listening to this really get some information on how to choose, choose well. Ah, my pleasure. I hope it's helpful. Thank you. So there you have it. Another neighborhood of Splitsville explored. There's still so much to learn here. So I hope you'll tune in to the next episode. While Splitsville is not a fun place to be, thankfully it is full of helpful people, valuable resources, and sound advice if you know where to look. See you next time. The insights and views presented in Welcome to Splitsville are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. Nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. If you're ready for compassionate and reliable legal guidance on your journey, contact Lee Sellers and her team at www.touchstonefamilylaw.com.